Because when the heat's on, there's nobody can lay down a set of pins faster than me. I'm the best you got. No, you're not. Oh. Well, then, you got me, boss. Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. The movies. Yes! 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 Oh! 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 I'll have what she's having. And the parties. No one in my family ever drinks. That's great! You probably never run out of ice your whole life. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your old pal Spearsy. And Brad in LA. And today we take a closer look at the career of actor Nicolas Cage. It's our interview with author Zach Schoenfeld, who talks about his new book, How Coppola Became Cage. Listen, I'm just a biochemist. Most of the time I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. I drive a Volvo, a beige one. But what I'm dealing with here... It's one of the most deadly substances the Earth has ever known. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? Steve, this episode of Stuck in the 80s is sponsored by... The 80s Cruise! Join your Stuck in the 80s hosts along with MTV VJs, Mark Goodman, and Alan Hunter in spring 2024 for a week-long trip on board the Royal Caribbean Mariner of the Seas. Do you ever wonder if Brad does this read every week? Yes, Brad does. <laughs> Performers will include 38 Special, Air Supply, The English Beat, Soft Cell, Debbie Gibson, Sheena Easton, Wang Chung, and more. Yes, the cruise is sold out, but you still have a shot at it if you get on the wait list. And don't forget to tell them Stuck in the 80s sent you because there's some heaven credit in it for you. Go to www.the80scruise.com for more information. I didn't want to hurt anyone, sir. Hi, we respect that, but you're just hurting yourself with this rambunctious behavior. I know that, sir. Okay, then. Hey, gang, how many of you out there are fans of Nick Cage in the 80s? Okay, okay, counting hands. Brad, is yours up? My hand is up. It is high as it can get. I mean, come on. Fast Times, Valley Girl. I had honestly, until I listened to this this interview, I had forgotten about Peggy Sue Got Married. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's in that. Uh, Raising Arizona, mm, amazing. Vampire's Kiss, perhaps the weirdest movie I've ever seen. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z's! Huh? That's all you have to do! <laughs> That's true. There's long, true enough there. Uh, then you're probably the ideal reader for this book, uh, How Coppola Became Cage, which is uh, written by this week's guest, Zach Schoenfeld. The The book, which was just actually released last week, I think it was released the day after I talked to Zach, it goes all the way back to uh, when Nick Cage, then known as Nick Coppola, or Coppola, depending on your pronunciation skills, I have none. So Coppola. Everyone knows, I assume by now, he's the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola. This book goes back and talks about him growing up. It goes all the way back to fourth grade and talks about an uh, encounter he had with a bully on a bus and how he acted like an older relative of himself to scare off the bully. It, it's an interesting way to begin the book. But overall, the book just kind of charts his way through high school into his career and how he got into acting. Um, who were his movie idols? James Dean. By the way, is mm. the answer to that question? Yeah, you can kind of see that, can't you? Yes. Um, did Did you get him to name his top five Nick Cage movies? So I, I I got him to kind of talk about my list of top five movies. So oh. I I think um, he's Zach's a little younger than us, like tw- twenty years younger than us. So uh, we'll allow it. He came into Nick Cage at a different time than we did. Like we. We saw him, you know, in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, even though he doesn't even have a speaking line. Right. You know, we got to know him in Valley Girl, you know, uh, Racing the Moon, Peggy Sue Got Married, you know, uh, Moonstruck. 
we were there like I had a front row seat as he became a star. So different I think our lists would be a little different than Zach's is what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, we just we we came to him in a different way as it were. So we we were there when it happened. Yeah, we're or, just Ro G Nick Cage fans. You know, hey. You know <laughs> we call him Nick. We you don't know, call him Nicholas. Nick Nick, Nick drives a Spitfire. Brad drives a Spitfire. We're basically the same guy. Yeah. Okay. It's funny because I was trying to come up with a list of the. I, I tried to come up with my own list of the top five Nick Cage movies, and I couldn't do it because there's there's so many phases of Nick Cage, and so there I have a list of, and I'll share it after the interview. Uh, top the top five Nick Cage movies I admit to loving. Um, I have a list of just his '80s movies ranked. And then I have a list of top five Nick Cage movies I'm almost ashamed to say I watched, but yet still enjoyed. I don't expect that all our problems can just vanish. But, oh Christ, I would cut my right arm off for another chance. Oh, please. And, and I will say that USS Indianapolis Men of Courage is oddly enough on that list. <laughs> I, just, hmm. I just watched it again Interesting. today. It's, have you seen it? It's, it's a horrible movie. It's, uh, I have not. He plays the captain of the USS Indianapolis, which was the Navy uh, destroyer or cruiser that took the atom bomb to Tinian that would end the World oh. War II. That ship oh. was sunk on its way back to the U.S. by um, a Japanese sub, and, and very few of the crew survived. I mean, they, most of them, a lot of them were eaten by sharks. So, oh gosh, it is. Oh, that's awful. It's wow. I, what a way to start our our show. I don't. I don't. I don't even know how you. What's a thirty? What's the elevator pitch for uh, USS Indianapolis Men of Courage? Think of Jaws, but think of Jaws as ancestors. <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger boat. But anyway, Zach is a really great guy. He has done an amazing job with this book. He has talked to so many people that worked with Nick. He has combed over every interview he's done. He fills in a lot of the blanks that we have when we think about, you know, what drives this guy. So I don't want to say any more. I just want to leave it up to, to me and Zach to talk about. So sit back. Enjoy this conversation with Jack Schoenfield, uh, author of How Couple Became Cage. And we'll be back afterwards with some Zeggies. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Your new book, uh, How Coppola Became Cage. I love it. And let's face it, it's so cool for 80s fans because we had a front row seat to watch Nick's career take off, you know, from Fast Times, Valley Girl, Birdie, uh, all the way to Vampire's Kiss. Um, I'm 56 and I attended high school and college in the 80s. But just for perspective, um, I'm assuming you're a little bit younger than I am. I'm 33. Wow. Okay. So yeah. you you came in. Your first Nicolas Cage movie must have been like somewhere in the nine. I mean, the nineties or the my first the first movie of his that I ever saw. I think was The Family Man, which is a movie that most people don't even remember. Um, came out in two thousand. It's a romantic comedy where um, he you know he plays a high powered high powered childless businessman who. Um, gets magically plopped into a suburban family life. That's that's the first one I ever saw. It did not make much of an impression on me at the time. <laughs> I was like I was 10 years old. Yeah. I I love Family Man. I I don't know why. I love to watch it every Christmas. It's a sweet it's a sweet Nick Cage movie in a time when he was really making you never know what was going to come next from him. So I, I Yeah. I kinda... Yeah. Yeah, he was jumping around from genre to genre. Um trying to figure you know trying to figure out what he what he wanted to focus on that was that was the first cage movie i ever saw um the first one that really made an impression on me i think was national treasure though which that would have come that came out in 2004 when i was i, I was about 14 um and from there you know when i was in high school i kind of started going backwards through his filmography when i was in high school i watched peggy sue got married i watched raising arizona um really loved his performance in both of those. And then later when I was in college, I saw Face Off for the first time and that had a, made a big impression on me. You know, so I was kind of starting with his early 2000s box office hits and just kind of like traveling backwards through his filmography and like trying to figure out what this guy's deal was. 
Yeah. As I was sitting here preparing for the interview, I was trying to go through my list of favorite cage movies and, and I had to break them down by category. I'm like, okay, here's my five favorite eighties mm. movies by him. Here's my five favorite <laughs> movies where I think he was just a fantastic actor. And then there's, here's my five movies that I don't admit to watching, but I still love nonetheless. And so you have, you got your family man and your, uh, let's see what else did I put on my list. Sorcerer's yeah. Apprentice, Lord of okay. War, uh, The Rock, Ghost Rider. <laughs> so, Lord of War is, is genuinely good, in my opinion. Yes. I'm, I'm a fan of Lord of War. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he, he's got a lot of phases. And I think that's what's so so compelling about your book is you you take on what seems to be the impossible task of trying to explain the career of Nick Cage. Yeah. How long did it take you to research and write this? Because to be honest, when you go through that book and you look at all the sources you use and all the interviews that you've culled, it's impressive. Yeah, this was a long, long endeavor. Um, I, I mean, I wrote, I conceived and wrote the book proposal in summer, fall, summer and fall of 2019. Um, I signed the contract with Oxford in the spring of 2020 in the middle of lockdown. Um, and I, I really started writing the book and reporting the book in earnest in like summer of 2020. So it was altogether, it was a three to four year process. You know, it, it was not, it was not something I approached lightly. Um, I, I interviewed upwards of 120, 130 people for this book, um, did hundreds of hours of research, you know, digging through newspaper archives, reading old interviews with Cage, watching old clips of of him speaking about his work on talk shows um tracking down every source i could from his past you know from directors and actors who worked with him in his early career all the way to some of his high school buddies um some of his i, I interviewed his own brother christopher coppola um so i when i approached this book you know there there's some other books about nicholas cage out there some of some of which have been very good some of which are not so good um, but I, my goal was to write a book that digs deeper into his backstory and deeper into his origin story than anything that has been published about Cage before. You know, I really wanted to dig deeper, find more sources, find more archival material, and just like really try to tell the story of where did this cultural icon where did, where did this cultural icon come from? You know, what made him into the man we know as Nicolas Cage? How did he, how, how did he get his start? Um, and a lot of, a lot of the challenge of writing the book was separating facts from mythology around Cage. Um, you know, I, I'm, there's just so much myth and rumor and speculation about Cage. There, there are a lot of stories that, you know, you don't, know if they're true or not you know some some of the stories around him are somewhat apocryphal some of them are absolutely 100 factual um and i kind of i saw my task as trying to separate the myth from fact trying to figure out you know what is really true about this this guy's background and, and this guy's rise to fame what factoid that you uncovered during the research surprised you the most oh god there were there were so many, you know, it was it was really interesting learning about his childhood and his high school years um, because I didn't I didn't know a whole lot about his child. I mean, obviously, I knew that he was a nephew of, of Francis Ford Coppola. That's the big fact that everyone knows about Nicolas Cage. Um, but I think when I researched the book, I, I didn't understand how traumatic his childhood really was um, for, you know, for audience members who aren't aware his his mother was severely mentally ill for much of his childhood um she was institutionalized for a good chunk of of cage's childhood and his father was kind of this eccentric literary professor who didn't really have the time or the money to be raising three boys you know on his own as a single parent um so Cage's older brothers had to step up and and care for him a lot when he was a kid. He had he had two older brothers. He was he was the youngest of three brothers, um, and his mother his mother was just absent for much of his childhood um, through no fault of her own. She she was very very ill, um, and he found it was during these years that he 
he found a lot of escape and solace just in watching television and watching movies and fantasizing about wanting to be on the other side of the screen, wanting to be, you know, an entertainer inside of the television set um so he had quite a difficult quite a lonely childhood and i think this is something that had a profound impact on his performances especially during these these formative years of his career um he he has spoken about how his performance in vampire's kiss was heavily inspired by his mother's mental illness and and certain things that he observed his mother doing you know he was he was playing a character in that movie who kind of loses his mind and he was um, taking cues from certain things that he had seen his mother doing when when he was a child. And then also early in his career, he starred in the movie Birdie, um, which is a movie that is largely set in some sort of institution where his, his best friend is in a catatonic state, um, traumatized from the Vietnam War. And Cage plays a young man who's trying to um, trying to reach his friend, trying to like bring his friend back to reality. Um, and, you know, in, in my book, I theorized that his performance in Birdie must have been at least somewhat inspired by his experiences as a child visiting his mother in a mental institution and, and trying to, I guess, communicate with her, trying to um, connect with her despite the fact that she was very ill, you know, very, very much in her own in struggling with her own um kind of mental illness so um i didn't i didn't know a whole lot about his childhood when i started the research for this book and i ended up writing more about it than i planned to because he he had a very a very interesting very traumatic childhood one of of the things about his childhood that jumps out at me that i'm reading in your book when he's 14 he goes to see james dean uh in uh, east of eden and he, right, and he right. talk about how James Dean changes his direction. I'm curious yeah. what you t- two part question here. First, how how much of James Dean do you think was he was channeling in those early movies? Uh, I, I, I really Valley Girl really comes to mind for that. And yeah. then and then at the same time, do you think that James Dean's death at an early age left Nick without a little direction? in the later part of his life and career? That's a good question. I think you can see James Dean's influence in the kinds of characters that he was drawn to in the 80s. He he was very drawn to playing these hothead, rebellious, um, you know, fast-talking type of, of, you know, bad boy characters, especially in Racing with the Moon, Birdie, um, perhaps Moonstruck, you know, in my book, I point out that there's some interesting plot similarities between Moonstruck and East of Eden. Um, And Cage Cage was very drawn to playing these bad boy, you know, societal outcast misfit characters, which I think is something very, very James Dean-esque. Later, you know, later on, he expanded his range, especially in in the 90s and, and so on. Um, but yeah, you you can you can see James Dean's influence in the kinds of roles he he was attracted to. Oh, the co- the Cotton Club for sure. The Cotton Club. He's he's playing this violent, vicious type of character. Um, and James Dean's death. Um, I think, I think you know, early in his career, Cage romanticizes the idea of living fast and dying young, and he you know, he, he liked to live a daredevil lifestyle. You know, he, he rode his motorcycle very fast. He, he talked about how when he had his, his kid, his son, Weston Cage, who was born in 1990, um, that mellowed him out. He started talking about how, you know, he would, he would tell interviewers like, oh, after my son was born, I started wearing my seatbelt and I stopped smoking because he, he no longer romanticized the idea of living fast and dying young. Um, but in the 80s, when Cage was in his 20s, he, he definitely was living a rebellious, you know, hard drinking, fast living type of lifestyle. Um, yeah. And he he also, you know, he idolized Pacino and Marlon Brando as well. He was he was very, very influenced by the like 60s and 70s style of, you know, American method actor, you know, act, actors who really um like to live the part in extreme ways and 
I think the media really romanticized the idea of someone like De Niro living the part in, you know, working 20 hour shifts as, as a cab driver when he was making taxi driver or um, gaining 60 pounds in order to play Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull. Cage was very attracted by these extreme shows of commitment for performance. The, the effect of Sean Penn on him when the two of them mm. worked together and racing with the yeah. movie, that that's an interesting part of your book. I, yeah. I had never, I racing with the moon is one of those movies that I, I remember and I saw it a few times, but it did, it didn't have the same impact on me as, as say a Valley girl did. But when you kind of point out that the, their collaboration creates a, a unique friendship and he starts to take on, he starts to, you know, embrace Sean Penn's method acting uh, methods. I, I thought that was really interesting. And I thought what was really shocking was how, uh, I don't want to ruin too much of the book because, to, to be honest, there, I mean, there's, there's so much to digest. But uh, when um, Penn comes out in the late '90s and basically turns on Cage and says he's no mm. longer an actor, he's a performer. I mean, ouch! That must have yeah. been such a betrayal. Yeah, they, they, those two had a very public falling out um, during Cage's, you know, big budget box office action movie years. But in my book, I argue that in the early 80s, no no actor that Cage worked with during those years had a bigger impact on him than Sean Penn. Um, and, you know, Sean Penn was a guy who really saw himself as this, like, serious method actor who would live in character for weeks, if not months, for every movie that he did. Um, for instance, I, I I interviewed Amy Heckerling, the, the director of Fast Times at Richmond High, and she told me about how Sean Penn insisted that his trailer did not, when, when he was making Fast Times, he insisted that his trailer didn't say Sean, but rather said Jeff Spicoli. He insisted that his chair said Spicoli, not Sean. And he would yell at people on set if they referred to him as Sean rather than Jeff. Um so Sean took his work very seriously, even even when he was acting, you know, even when he was starring in what is obviously a comical, silly film. He wanted to live inside the character. And he did the same thing on uh, Racing with the Moon, where he would yell at crew members if they called him Sean rather than um, what I am forgetting what his character's name is. Is in it Racing Nikki? With the Moon. Is it, no, it's not Nikki. It's uh... no Nick Cage's character is Nikki. Uh, Sean's character is Hopper. Hopper. Hopper, that's right. Um, so he insisted that everyone on set call him Hopper. Um, he was living inside, you know, he was living as a character. And um, not only was he trying to remain in character, but Sean Penn actually fell in love with Elizabeth McGovern during Racing with the Moon, you know, and she, obviously she plays his love interest in that film. So um, Cage was very influenced by this, this um, idea of don't act, be, you know, don't pretend to be the character, be the character. Um, and he was young. He was he was about 19 when he was doing Racing with the Moon. He he didn't really know where to draw the line. And so he took it too far. Um, there's there is one story that comes up in the book where he um, he was he wanted to feel he wanted to feel real pain in the scene. So he took out a knife and he literally slashed his arm and, and started bleeding um, because he wanted to feel some kind of like real um, visceral pain. And the director, Richard Benjamin, yelled at him and said, you know, what are you doing, man? Like, this isn't that kind of movie. Um, and then it was I think it was right right after Racing with the Moon. Cage did Cotton Club, his, his uncle's movie in which he plays this you know, vicious, sociopathic, racist mobster character. Um, and so the the shoot for Cotton Club stretched on for months on end. Cage is trying to stay in character, playing this violent gangster, and he's out of control on that set. He he he's admitted that he trashed his trailer. Um, he at one point he started smashing up like prop cars. He started kicking cars on set because he was trying to get hyped up for a scene. Um, and there, there's one story that comes up in the book where Cage is playing, Cage is playing a, a racist character in the Cotton Club. And in the movie, if you've, if you've seen the movie, his character uses racial slurs several times throughout the movie. And he started using racial slurs, you know, on set 
just in between scenes when the camera wasn't rolling because he wanted to just embody his character 100 percent and that's that's where he he got into some trouble i mean he got into trouble for trashing his trailer as well i one one person who i interviewed who was a cast like a casting assistant on that film recalled that um his pay was docked because he he was charged for the repairs to his trailer and then when he was using racial slurs he he got into a fight with an extra on the film who who was a black man who was understandably very upset by you know this white actor using the n-word out of nowhere on a film set um so the i mean these are examples of how cage took influence from people like Sean Penn and also people like Marlon Brando and Al Pacino, who he had either read about or heard about his uncle working with in The Godfather. Um, And Cage had this very, this very idealistic idea that like, if you wanted to give a great performance, you just had to live as your character for, for months on end to, to try to understand what your character was going through. You interviewed Nick in 2015, right? That's correct. Yeah. Long before I even even began the process of writing this book. What um, was that in person? Was that on the phone? How'd you do that? It was a phone interview. You know, it was one of those it was one of those junket interviews where Cage was doing press for a new movie. And he, you know, he would just do like five interviews in quick succession. How would you describe him as an interview subject? Do you think he was kind of going through the motions or is there any questions you would have asked differently looking back? There are a lot of questions I would ask differently. I feel like that interview only scratched the surface of his work. Um, I mean, for one, for one, for one thing, I I was 25 when I did that interview. I had, bare, you know, I had not begun researching his work in any serious way. I, you know, it was just a quick Q and A for Newsweek um, to promote his new movie. So it it wasn't the kind of interview that I would like to do with him. Um, but he was charming. He w- he was thoughtful. He was game to answer all of my questions. Um, there was one question that I asked him about some of the internet memes about Cage and, and the YouTube supercuts. Um, when I did this interview, I think this was in 2015. This was kind of in the middle of that period where Cage was turning into an internet meme kind of against his, you know, out of his control and without his consent. Um and unbeknownst to me at the time, he was very sensitive about that subject. He was he was very sensitive about the idea of the Internet kind of treating him as a joke and turning him into this like goofy meme that spiraled out of control. Um, and I asked him about that because I was genuinely curious and I was curious, you know, what is his response to people, people treating him in this very silly way? Um and he was game to answer the question. He, he he said something about how, like, I try not to think about it too much because it's just not within my control. But then after the interview was completed, um, I received a call from the PR person who had set up the interview asking me to spike that question from, from the Q&A, um, which was really weird because this PR person was like, we don't want that to appear in the Q&A. And I, and I, and my editor had to get on the phone with her and my editor stood by me and said like, you know, this question is fair game. You know, we're going to include it in the interview. And the PR person was like, Oh, the PR person was like, Oh, well, if you're going to use that question, then we'd rather you just spike the whole interview. And my (laughs) editor was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, you know, we didn't agree to any, any terms about what we could ask Nicholas, you know, this is, this question is completely fair game. So that was weird. That was very unexpected. And that was when I began to realize like, oh, you know, Cage has some hangups about the fact that people are turning him into a meme. He, you know, he's very sensitive to this. Um, and so I, I was taken aback by that whole experience of this publicist trying to control what, you know, what, what questions we publish in our interview. Um, and yeah, when I look back on that interview, I feel like I was just a kid when I did that interview. I barely scratched the surface of his filmography. Um, and partially that's because I didn't have the, you know, it was a 15 minute like phoner. It was one of those, one of those very rushed, very um, surface level Q&As. Um, there are so many questions that I would like to ask him now that I just was not able to ask him then. 
So, so yeah, I'm glad that I had the experience of speaking with him, but I feel like that interview is so, so surface level in retrospect. I, I hate doing actor interviews, especially short ones. Yeah. Because you feel like you have to focus on the project at hand. You can't yeah. Really... That's the other thing. And I, my, my experience with actors is they don't really like to go to, to the past, which is where I pretty much reside, you know, in the eighties, nobody really wants to talk about something they did 40 years ago. Right. And um, it's like, it's like a musician. I mean, Ario Speedwagon has to play take it on the run every night. So they'll, they'll answer a question about it today, but Nick Cage is not going to answer my question about uh, vampires kiss or racing with the moon or Valley girl. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it seems like he's made in recent years, he's been much more willing to do wide ranging Q and A's. Um, you know, four years ago, he, in 2019, he did a great interview with David Marchese of, of New York times magazine, where he was really revisiting all these different films from his past. And he was also in that interview, he was addressing some sensitive subjects about, you know, talk, talking pretty candidly about the fact that, um, he's had serious financial issues and he's done a lot of movies for the money, which is something that he's become a little more comfortable acknowledging on the record. Um, but yeah, the interview that I did with him, he was promoting a movie called Pay the Ghost, which is one of many, 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 you know, mediocre forgotten movies that he was pumping out in the 2010s decade. Um, I wish I could have interviewed him when he was promoting a better movie. Like, you know, he's he's done some pretty memorable movies in, in more recent years, like Mandy, for instance, or Pig. Um, I would have loved to have gotten the chance to interview him when he was doing, you know, promo for one of those movies. But um, yeah, I'm I'm glad that I had that chance to talk with him as brief, as rushed and as like haphazard as it was. Yeah. I, I thought it was a great interview. I thought with the time you had, you engaged him with some thoughtful questions. He pushed back. You pushed back. Yeah. You had the great question yeah. about regrets, which um, so many actors tend to, I, I hate it when actors say they have no regret regrets. Everybody has regrets. Yeah. They just don't want to talk about it. Well, I know, them. I know that I did, I did ask him what's, you know, what's the role that you turned down that you wish you had done? Because I find that always elicits interesting, um, in, interesting answers from movie stars because it really, you know, you, you get this all, you, you learn about this alternate reality where, you know, you learn that Cage turned down Lord of the Rings and, and you start wondering like, oh, like, you know, what if Cage had been in Lord of the Rings? How, how would his career have been different? How would the universe be different? Um, so that was interesting that, you know, there are a lot of movies throughout his career that Cage was offered or perhaps considered for that he didn't do. Um, for example, in my book, I talk about how he was offered the Jeff Daniels role in Dumb and Dumber, which is something that fascinates me. You know, <laughs> would would he have been able to pull off Dumb and Dumber? Would, would that have even worked? You know, if it had worked, like how would his career have been different if he had starred in Dumb and Dumber and, and become this this comedy star in the mid 90s? Um, so it's like there's an alternate universe there where Cage starred in Dumb and Dumber and, and became like a big budget comedy type of actor. So, so that kind of raises the question where as he ages, I mean, he's a little older than I am. Um, mm. Do you think, how do you see his career path going? Do you think he's going to evolve and start maybe assuming the role of like an elder statesman in Hollywood and taking on projects that are maybe <clears throat> fewer and far farther between and, and maybe a little bit more held in higher esteem than the sort of brick of brack where you that he does right now i hope so um you know when i when i as i mentioned i started this book a long time ago you know the whole the whole process of this book goes back to 2019 so when i embarked on this project i wasn't expecting that cage would have this revi this career revival of sorts that he has had over the past 2 years um, I think Pig really lifted his career. Pig, I think, was his the best performance he's done in a number of years. And then right after Pig, he starred in that movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, where he plays a fictionalized version of himself. Um, personally, I wasn't a fan of that movie, but that a lot of people did like that movie. And it certainly 
brought him a lot more attention and a lot more goodwill than he has received in in many years. Um, and when you know when he was on the press run for Unbearable Weight of Master Talent, he 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 talked about how he that movie finally allowed him to pay off his real estate debts, which had been like a huge. Um, a huge cloud hanging over his head for about a decade where, you know, he, he had to do like five movies a year for, for about 10 years in, or, in order to pay off all of these real estate debts. And that's part of why his career like kind of sank into the toilet for, for a few years there where he was doing all these bad movies because he just, he needed to do movie after movie um, in order to pay off his financial problems. Um so he's he's become a little more choosy about roles. You know, he, he can afford he can afford to be a little more choosy about what roles he does, which I think is a very good thing. Um, you know, he starred in Renfield, which was he he finally got the chance to play Dracula, which which was a role that he coveted for many, many years. Um, and now he's in this new A24 film, Dream Scenario, which I'm planning to go see this weekend. I haven't seen it yet. Um but yeah, it's it's it seems like Cage is in the middle of a bit of a cage sauce. He's 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 able to be a little more selective about what roles he chooses, um, and his batting average has improved as a result of that. He's he's doing more interesting films, more like more more movies that actually get a proper theatrical release, which is heartening. Fewer of the straight to VOD type of disposable movies that that he's been doing. Um, so I, I I'm very you know I'm very eager to see where this Cage Assange goes. I'm I'm I'd like to see him working with um, great directors. I think when I interviewed him for that Newsweek Q and A, he talked about how he really wants to work with Paul Thomas Anderson, um, and that's that's something that has never happened. I would I would kill to see those two work together. That that is something where you know I fantasize about what what would it look like for Cage to to do a PTA movie. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that his career revival will will continue and you know I'm I'm very it's hard to make any clear predictions, but I'm curious to see where this where this Cage Assans goes. Zach, I love this book. It is a a comprehensive look at an actor who is so complicated but still so beloved by my generation. If if people are looking to buy a copy of it, where should they look? Yeah, so it's on sale on the all the usual websites, uh, Barnes and Noble's website, Amazon's website. Um, you can find it on bookshop.org. Um, or, you know, I would love for people to order it from their local independent bookstore. It's called How Coppola Became Cage. Um, it comes out November 10th. It's available. I hope it's available at a bookstore, at a, at a bookstore near you. Zach, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. There you go, Zach Schoenfeld. What do you think? I mean, I'm surprised you didn't talk more about Debbie Foreman and how she and Nick were a couple, just given your rich and varied history with Ms. Foreman herself. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I Well, she he had asked for an interview with her, and she said no. Um, she declined, you know, firmly. Oh, and, goodness. Um, so... His version of what happened, the the version that he has, it does it's more or less lines up with the version that Debbie told me back in okay. 2009. But I did send him. He and I, Zach and I, talked after the interview ended, and I said, "Hey, I don't, I don't know if you know, but I, you know, I interviewed Debbie back in 2009 for about 45 minutes, and I can send you a transcript of it. I can also send you a link to it. And so he, he did listen to it and, and we talked about it afterwards. So that's cool. That's cool. I'm really glad you talked about the meme era. I know that wasn't in the eighties, but the Nick cage meme era, there was a period, I want to say the kids were maybe 12 or 13 and Cameron printed out about 10 or 15 copies of Nick cages face and like hid them in things around the house, like in drawers <laughs> and in books and like, and we could just kept coming across them. I think at this point we found them all, but I can't be a hundred percent sure that there isn't a Nick Cage meme printout lurking somewhere in a closet waiting to jump out at me. <laughs> I 
take take the lid off the toilet and see if you didn't tape one underneath. Oh well, we've replaced the toilet since oh, then. I know okay. that's exciting. Yeah, that's that's. There's uh, a bit. Of, there's some breaking news for you, stuck in '80s fans. Ta-da! I, okay, we could talk all day about Nick Cage's career, the ups and downs, whatever. But I feel like he covered it pretty clearly. Where's your list? Okay, I need list. Okay, okay. So uh, let's see how we're gonna do this. I'm gonna do the uh, top five '80s movies. Okay. By, uh, okay. Nick Cage. I like this it. is my list. You know, personal preference. Okay. Uh, one. I'm going to go in the logical order. Number one, Valley Girl. Uh, that's just the one where you get to meet him for the first time. And uh, two, Racing with the Moon, the movie with Sean Penn, where he and Sean become buddies. Okay. Three, Moonstruck. Obviously, has to be on the list. Here's where it gets kind of kind of cagey. I I do not like Peggy Sue Got Married, so it is not on my list. Okay. Um, Birdie is my number four pick, even though that's a kind of a dark movie. And then I I have mixed feelings about this one, but I'm out of other options. I'm going to go with Raising Arizona for number five. The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. Don't forget his profile, Ed. Turn to the right. A day I'll never forget. Turn to the right! Kind name is it for a pretty thing like you. Short boy, Edwina, turn to the right! You're a flower, you are. Just a little desert flower. Let me know how those come out. I would have to reach through the phone line and throttle you if you hadn't included <laughs> it. Because it's, God, it's just so quotable. It is so quotable. Because her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. <laughs> I need to give it another shot. It's, it's you know, look, it's weird in some ways, but it's, I love it. I know, oh my I gosh. know. And it's just so quirky. It's just pointed right at me. I, I just can't put Vampire's List on there. I, oh, God, that's, oh, that's bad. That soured me on Nick Cage for a long yeah, time. It was like the start of the weirdness, I think. And... I just can't. I tried to watch it again before the interview. I couldn't. I got like about maybe 20 minutes into it. And I'm like, nope, nope. It's got to go off. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate what he had to say in the interview about how he was, you know, kind of taking some things he'd learned from his mom who was had mental problems. Sure. And like, okay, that's that made it a little more interesting, but I'm still not going to go yeah. back and watch it again. There's, here's the thing. I, I get that it's an important movie on some level, on some levels. And I know that there's plenty of 80s fans out there who love it. I don't know how to explain this without sounding cavalier or just weird. Not just not a when when movies get a little too deep into uh, mental issues, I tend to. It's not entertaining to me anymore. It's not entertaining. Yeah, that's that was kind of my thing with Bright Lights, Big City, which I know I've talked about at some length. I'm like, I'm not getting anything out of this. Yeah. The guy's just spiraling in, and I don't need to watch it. Right. I'm not going to learn anything from that. Yeah, there's no. It's, it's hard to. It's just. It's hard for me to to go through. Okay, uh, the top five Nick Cage movies. I'm ashamed to say that I watched and enjoyed. Um, th- these are not bad movies, in my opinion. Uh, number one, Con Air. Okay. Number two, Sorcerer's Apprentice. <laughs> I have no recollection of that. <laughs> it's 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 worth going back and seeing. Three, Lord of War. And this is one that Zach and I talked about for a second. He's like, well, that's not really a guilty pleasure movie. That's a good movie. And I'm like, yeah, I guess it is. Um, number four, The Rock. It's a cholinesterase inhibitor. Stops the brain from sending nerve messages down the spinal cord within 30 seconds. Any epidermal exposure or inhalation, and you'll know. Twinge at the small of your back as the poison seizes your nervous system. Do not move that! Your muscles freeze. You can't breathe. You spasm so hard you break your own back and spit your guts out. But that's after your skin melts off. Hold on a second. You're ashamed to say that you watched and enjoyed The Rock? Well, just... Which... Features not only Nicolas Cage, but Sean Connery well, and Ed Harris, I think, <laughs> and a bunch of, like, poison missiles. 
and drama and intrigue. And I got to tell you, I remember very distinctly seeing that in the movie theater. Katie and I went and saw that one, I don't know, Saturday night. We came out of that movie theater at like 11 o'clock and we were so amped up. We went home and I'm not kidding you. We went home and cleaned the apartment. We had so much energy coming out of that movie. It was just like, I can't go to sleep right now. Yeah, me either. Okay, let's just let's just clean the place up. <laughs> that is weird. That's that a great the way movie. The story. That is not a guilty pleasure movie. Yeah, I know what you thought was going to happen, <laughs> and that's none of your business. So, uh, number five, Ghost Rider. How does it feel to have all that evil inside of you? All their power. All their souls. A thousand souls to burn. Look into my eyes. Your souls are stained by the blood of the innocent. Feel their pain. Eh, that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. Okay, and, and then and then the ultimate um, list, the top five Nick Cage movies. This again, my personal list. I, everyone's got their own list to make. Uh, number one, Valley Girl still takes it. That movie's just. You know, it's one of the foundations yeah. of the podcast. It's I'm not gonna have I'm not gonna miss it. Uh, number two, Face Off, I think is a fantastic okay. movie. Number three, okay. Leaving Las Vegas. Mm, yeah, serious. That's a serious one. Yeah, uh, and then, and then t- these these next two are sort of guilty pleasures, but I still maintain that they're great, <laughs> great on some level to me. Number four, National Treasure. Either of the National Treasure movies, to be honest. Yeah, I enjoy those. They're fun. Uh, and then number five, and this is going to be a weird pick, The Family Man. Please just think about this for one second. No more lousy restaurants. No more clipping coupons. No more shoveling snow. Then get a goddamn snowblower, Jack. Don't go get a new career without even telling me about it. And don't, don't take Annie out of a school that she loves and don't move us out of a house we've become a family in. You're, you're, don't you see? I'm talking about us finally having a life that other people envy. Oh, Jack. They already do envy us. I'm going to tell you, I love that pick. I was shocked to hear you name check it. I really like that movie. Yeah. I don't even know if it's a good movie, but I will watch it. No, I, Anytime I yeah. happen to come across it, I, I think it's really enjoyable. Is it a great movie? Eh, I don't know. Is it a little schmaltzy? Oh yeah, eh, I don't know. Yeah. But that moment where his, you know, parallel universe daughter's like, "Oh, Dad, you're back." Oh yeah. Oh, it just, just it just it breaks me. Yeah. It just breaks yeah. me. Oh, you know, you know. In my mind, you know, you really are hopelessly attached to a movie when you when you make the leap and you buy the digital copy on Amazon so that you can watch Ooh. it anytime. Nice. I I own Family Man on Amazon, so. That's why I love you, brother. That's why I love you. Now, I will say there's one movie that I wish you'd found a place for, and I didn't do a list because Steve didn't tell me to do a list. I don't think about myself because I'm not that smart. I am surprised that Honeymoon in Vegas is not on the list someplace because I think that movie is delightful. I We're the Flying Elvises, <laughs> Rito chapter. Yeah, I don't know. I think that movie is super fun. Saw it once, didn't need to see it again. But eh, okay. everyone everyone has their thing, so it's just sure. Um, but uh, no, Face Off to me, uh, Family Man. I, I don't need to have. I don't need to own Face Off on Amazon Prime, but uh, I need to own the Family Man. Hell, I may watch it when this podcast is over tonight. Yeah, now I'm thinking maybe that should be my Thanksgiving tradition this year is to watch Family Man. Oh wow! It happens happens about that time of year, doesn't it? It's really more on Christmas. It's more Christmas. It's a Christmas movie. <gasps> we got a new Christmas movie to watch. That Yay. would be nice. So double feature that with Elf. <laughs> you know what I like to double feature right about now? The, the Saggies. What's happening, hot stuff? Ah, uh, by the sound of the gong, it must be time for a mystery movie moment. We will play a snippet of a movie from the eighties if you get it right. You're into the drawing for us, postal friendly bottle opener. I'm talking twice as fast because I understand that some people speed up the podcast during this portion of the show. Oh <gasps> That hurts a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But we'll get over it. Anyway, from episode 681, here was the clip. Shove it! Don't do that, kid. I call the shots. I do what I want to do. That's 
The Color of Money. That's a Brad pick. It is. What inspired you to pick that one? I don't remember. I mean, I have <laughs> I various remember. methods. I have various methods to come up with this. A lot of times I just pick a, a year and then I go to the week that we record the show in that year and look at like the top oh, five or ten movies. That's pretty smart. And then, and then I do that usually with the charts too Damn when it. I pick a song. I didn't. I just, just, it just gives me a little bit of a some guardrails because otherwise I just am like, oh, Valley Girl. Yeah, Valley Girl. <laughs> yeah, we did, oh, have we done Valley Girl yet? Hey, what about Whip It? Have we done Whip It? <laughs> I don't think we have ever done with it for reasons, but isn't it seventies? Isn't it technically nineteen seventy nine? Color of money? No, whip it. Oh no, it's nineteen eighty. Okay, I just well then just delete that from the show. <laughs> you know what? What I do is I, I stare over. I have a DVD collection. I don't have too many DVDs anymore. Once once upon a time, I probably had about four hundred of them. Now yeah. I just keep the eighties ones now. So and they're like in this little wooden DVD tower that. Bad Andy, my friend Bad Andy. You know, you remember Bad Andy? Of course, Bad Andy. He, he lives. He was there for all the bad things that happened to me in Vegas. Yeah, he lives on a farm outside of Gainesville, Florida now. But he built me this lovely DVD tower, and it just it's sitting three feet away from me, and it has all the '80s movies in there. And sometimes I'll just look over there and go, "Did we do a one from you know yeah. Major League? Yeah, sh- I'm sure we have. Or have we done one from? I'm looking at it now. Oh. I mean, that's the thing. I know we repeat. We repeat TV themes from time to time. I see it when I search for winners. I'm like, oh, there's. A, a, why do I have 40 emails that have, you know, whatever, the color of money in it? I'm like, oh, because we've used it before. Yeah. So, but I just, if I just go from my memory, I'm going to pick something that is either super obscure that I love or, you know, Back to the Future. So. <laughs> I just try to give myself some guardrails to help me. No, pick that's something that's, that, that's smart. I, I wish I had thought of that. I, half the time, the songs I pick are ones just I just heard today on SiriusXM. So there you go. Anyway, we did have some winners, not as many as I would have liked. Got to admit, I feel I feel like we we swung. I felt swung. like I played out a nice long clip there. I think it's pretty obvious it's Tom Cruise. Yeah, and it's but you definitely know, obvious. Well, but if you named, know. if I sat there and said, name as many Tom Cruise movies from the eighties as you can in thirty seconds. I don't know that the color... You probably wouldn't get to no, this. No, you wouldn't. Yeah, you're right. It's not one that anyone thinks about. I haven't seen this in a long time. I tend to think it would hold up just fine. Oh, yeah. Because it's a character story. Sure. It doesn't really matter when it is. Exactly. Uh, but let me read the winners. Enough of us <laughs> expounding on the that glories a lot of, of the color gazing, of money. Yeah. Here we go. Winners this week include Aubrey H., Jeff in Utah, Dr. John Mark Beauvais, New Wave Todd, and Stroobs in Rutherford. Oh, nice. Uh, okay, well, let's now that that's done, let's play another clip and see what people say. Are you ready? Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery movie clip. Oh, well, Peter Piper picked a pepper. I guess I did. Oh. If you know it, email us at podcast at sit80s.com. See, I slowed that down for you. And uh, check, check in soon. See if you're a winner. Uh, time for the mystical refrain of name that 80s tune. Brad, you know the rest. Come on. Take the ball and run. Uh, let's see. Name that 80s tune. We play a snippet of a song from the 80s, and if you name it, and if you can name it, your name. Uh, <laughs> no, I can't do it, Steve. Okay, I'm going to do it then. We play a snippet <laughs> of a song from the 80s, and if you can guess it, we put your name in the drawing for the postal-friendly bottle opener. And guess what, Steve? Not only am I all caught up on sending them out to the listeners, I sent you a couple last week. I know. Did you get them yet? No, not yet. Uh, come on, USPS. <laughs> It, this is, you know what? Mailman Jeff is mad at us for reading him the riot act. That's what happened, and all our mail's getting slowed down. Well, it's, I, I mean, I don't know if you're keeping up with current events, but it's been raining for like five days straight in Florida. So I don't know that we're getting um, anyone's top game as far as uh, mm, home delivery well, services. So they're they're tired of getting rained on. I'm tired of. Uh, I don't know what I'm tired of doing. You're just you're just, just tired, tired, Steve. It's okay. It's that time of year it's dark early you just want to go to bed i do i i it takes me like a good two or three weeks to get used to it yeah Uh, well but in the meantime (laughs) let's play the clip from the last show that's amanda by boston
I, I didn't figure you as a Boston fan. You know what? I am a Boston fan, although I never listened to this third album. I mean, like, look, I think you all know the story, but we'll tell it anyway. That's how it goes around here on the podcast. You know, Boston released those first two albums in the late 70s. I think they were both in the late 70s. And they're huge hits, right? Sure. Their, their, their debut is just amazing top to bottom. Don't Look Back is pretty close to that good. I would say not quite as good. And then I think they went into some contract issues with the label and it was like, well, we're not recording a show. Well, we're not letting you out. So it was some time. I think this came out in 86 or 87 before their next album came out. And uh, look, I don't mean to damn Boston with faint praise, but the quality suffered a little bit between <laughs> two and three. But this was a big hit and a big album. I think it probably was a number one album. Oh, yeah, probably. I, you know, my problem with Boston, I, I, I love... Don't get me wrong. I, I'm, a, I'm a big Boston fan. Ha, have I seen them in concert? No. Um, no, I don't think they've... I mean, one of the guys is dead. Yeah. I I think I had one or two chances, and I was just kind of like, no. Um, I, I had a friend I was close with in high school, and we were in a bowling league together, of all things. And he would pick me up every Saturday morning in his brother's muscle car. And I, I can't remember what kind. It was like it was, uh, early 70s muscle car. Just something that made a lot of noise yes. and used a lot of gas. Yes. Yeah, and love it, it. And it had a stereo system in it that probably cost twice as much as the car. And so he would pick me up and we would drive the 25 minutes to uh, – all I remember is the bowling alley was right next to Super Skate, which was the – Roller skating that I dream destination yeah. for young Spearsy. Yeah. So we would get there, but the whole way to and from, he would play Boston. So in, in my the back of my head, I, I picture the 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 sights and smells of a of an early seventies muscle car. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! And um, but uh, uh, not friends with him anymore since he borrowed an obscene amount of money from me and then declared bankruptcy and disappeared. So oh man, well I won't do that to you, Steve. <laughs> But uh, my most recent really strong memories of this album were, and I think I talked about this on the show at the time, there was a period during COVID when my company had a project going in Arizona, and I was driving back and forth. And so I was driving home on a Friday night, and you're out in the middle of nowhere. Like, there is no surface light. There's no traffic because it's COVID. Who's on the roads? And so you just you feel like you're in this absolute cocoon, and I'm listening to like the second Boston album, top to bottom. And I'm like, am I still in the year 2020? <laughs> like, I, there's no way of knowing. Maybe I've traveled through time and space. And when I pull over for gas, it's going to be a buck and a quarter. And people are going to be like, where's that crazy contraption from? <laughs> I'm sorry to say that did not happen, but it was kind of kept me entertained for 20 or 30 miles, which is helpful. Yeah, whatever it takes. Yeah, so... We also had some winners here. Shall I read yeah, them, Yeah, might as well. I'm out of stories about my deadbeat friend. <laughs> yeah, okay. Actually, I'm well, not. I have, deadbeat- I have so many stories about him. I could I could tell one every episode for the next five years. Until- <laughs> that's our that's our spinoff podcast. <laughs> Steve's-, Steve's deadbeat friends. Okay, I got this week on Steve's deadbeat friends. <laughs> Go ahead. Read the winners. Okay. Winners I'm not one of them. Include- oh, Steve, you are my number one winner. Winners this week include Aubrey H., Jeremy Who Shot J.R. Rodwin, The Tromboner, Cincinnati Joe, Chad in NorCal, Kevin Serving, Wench, Peter Ryan, Brian from Southwest of Chulak, Plain Pulling Tom, Mary Beth from Madison, Ohio, Stroobs in Rutherford, Christopher Vern Varney, Ross in Pennsylvania, Dave from New Hampshire, but nowhere near Canada, Keanu from Midmo, Peter Chandler, Lou, Sweet Lou, Greeley, Sal from Stowe, Larry in Maryland, Tim from Asheville, Mike Fetcher, and Dave De La Dirt. Who writes, for years in my adult life, I completely disregarded Boston, just wrote them off as bland corporate rock, which is not entirely untrue, but I was probably way more harsh on them than I should have been. Most likely, this was due to the few years I spent in my band Rocket Park and in an old school Yahoo group, remember those? Filled with local musicians, many of whom were music critics with the Post or other newspapers, record store employees, and just generally major music snobs. Yeah, you think that might be it, Dave Dillager? I don't know. Mm. I think he nailed we'll it. to the jury. I slept, I think so too. I slept on a lot of stuff I later learned to enjoy simply because it was deemed, quote, not cool enough, unquote, by these people. When I started playing drums in my current band, I would always give the bass player crap about loving Boston. 
In addition to our original gigs, we play quite a few cover gigs as well. In preparation for one of them, we had a request to learn Hitch a Ride. I rolled my eyes, but I learned the song. It became a staple of our set list, and truth be told, I really love playing it. I can also really appreciate the production involved in those albums. Still stuck in the 80s, Dave of the Dirt. <laughs> Dave of the Dirt. Yeah, I think the production the production <clears throat> quality on those albums is kind of shocking, honestly. Oh, yeah, for sure. For what, for what they are and when they came out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I just, I, I think that might be one of the reasons, too, like, as the 80s went on, that I, by the time Amanda came out, I wasn't listening to that kind of music anymore. <clears throat> right. You had moved on. Yeah. You had gotten rid of the Sticks t-shirt and gotten the Frankie Goes to Hollywood t-shirt. Uh, speaking of Sticks, I have another story about my deadbeat friend and my Sticks concert shirt, but I'll save that for another show. <laughs> Spearsy, say relax. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, let's uh, spin the, the wheel of fun and see who gets the uh, postal-friendly bottle opener. Okay, here we go. Uh, I loved how you brushed over the pronunciation of Chilliwack. Just, yeah, just just hurry through it. So the Canadians don't get mad at us. Mumble a little <laughs> bit, you know. And I'm sorry, but New Hampshire is somewhere near Canada, Dave. It kind of is, especially from where I'm sitting and where you're sitting, <laughs> yeah. too. Perspective. Uh, looks like it's going to land on Peter Chandler. Peter, email us your snail mail address, and we will get some swag out to you. I guess Brad will, because I'm, I'm about to Post go on vacation. So. I'm on it. Yeah. Yeah, Steve's gonna be away. What show topic should I do while he's gone? <laughs> you could talk about the Milli- You could talk about the Millie Vanilli documentary that everyone keeps asking me about that I'm never gonna watch. Oh, I, I could do that. <laughs> Although I could also do like you know Brad's favorite albums. Do like a little track rundown. <laughs> I've never done a. I've never even thought about doing a solo podcast. Don't. That sounds really daunting. It's not. We'll see. Trust me. Then so, someone just. Uh, I, I was. It's a letter we're probably gonna read, so I'll save it. But somebody who was going back through our catalog. I had to take a dig at the Tom Wopat show that I did solo. <laughs> oh, man. Come on. That's that's just rude. That's fine. You know what, though? Play the team that's in front of you. That's all you can well, do. You, 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 you try something. If it doesn't work, you never try it again. Ever, ever. There you go. You bury it deep inside you. <laughs> so that, And you never, <laughs> never, ever. speak of it again. <laughs> never, ever speak of it again. You let. You wrote Cleveland on it? That's admissible. <laughs> It is. Just bury it down, <sighs> surround it in the darkest part of your heart, and, and just dismiss it like it was complete fiction. Uh, anyway, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. If you know it, email us at, at podcast at sit80s.com and tune in next time to find out if you're a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. It's a Radio Shack Merry Christmas. Oh, I remember that Christmas. Dad gave me my first shortwave radio from Radio Shack. What memories. This Christmas, we got our son's color computer three from Radio Shack. It hooks right up to our TV and was on sale for less than $130. The color computer three makes learning fun. Jimmy even lets me use it for word processing. When he isn't playing computer games. Lucky I still got my shortwave. Save $70 on the sale-priced color computer three. Only at Radio Shack. Hey, we're back. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> you take it. Hey, we're back. Got a few minutes left. I wanted to thank um, those who have uh, joined the Patreon uh, program in support of the podcast. Uh, it's it's a way for us to defer some costs of production and uh, keep bringing you the show. Um, you can join for, I think, as little as $2 a month or $10 a year, I think. So if you go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast you can find out more and if you join and become a patron you get you get a heads up on every uh, podcast that's coming out you get invited to the monthly zoom happy hours we just had a zoom coffee club this month yeah that was fun yeah i mean just mix it up a little bit try and give people who maybe don't aren't available in the evening a chance to come yeah. and you know a little different vibe we do uh, virtual drive-in theater um you get access to our uh uh, patron only blog that's kind of fun I, I had an old man grumbling post the other day about kiss concerts that god i, I loved it it's so <laughs> I good i just couldn't mm. i couldn't take it anymore uh but i did figure out by the way i was grumbling in the podcast about not being able to figure out how to um clear my search history in youtube and i finally did figure that out today so oh good little, okay small so victories 
they will haunt you no further yeah. with their their uh, made up faces we'll, and we'll see. Uh, stale patter. I don't, know. I don't know. Something 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 tells me they're going to be the last thing I see before I pass it to the great beyond. <laughs> <laughs> the um, welcome, Spiercy. <laughs> we we did get some new patrons lately. I, Brad, I want you to take uh, time to read off some names. Yeah, of course. Happy to do that. And thank you again to each and every one of you. Uh, patrons, new patrons we'd like to welcome. James White, Brian McGaw, Dan Witt, Chrissy L., Roby Sprouse, Retro DJ Travis Bell, and Irwin with an E. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It, it really does help. It really does help us keep this going. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, also news that um, you may not be aware of. There's a 90s cruise now from the same people who do the 80s cruise, uh, Entertainment Cruise Productions out of St. Louis, just announced, we had it on our last podcast, but in case you blew that off, <laughs> there is... It happens, we know. There is a 90s cruise. It's If you go to the90scruise.com, you can find out for more information. It's got... Um, oh, Blues Travelers is on it. <sighs> uh, let's see, Fastball, Jesus Jones... Um Sadly, no spin oh, there's doctors. Some, there's some, yeah, <laughs> that's, that would be the canonical act to get right. Yeah, but uh, people who, who have been asking, does this mean the '80s cruise is going away? No, it's an addition. Uh, ECP does a lot of themed cruises. They do the Star Trek cruise, which is every year the week before the '80s cruise. They do a, a high seas rally cruise in which they just finished, which is more of a motorcycle themed yep. cruise. Or for those who have a cycling uh perspective of the world and uh now they uh, also recently announced plans for a comic-con san diego comic-con cruise which i think is the week after the 90s cruise and those are both in 2025 uh-huh so something to consider if you if you're a fan of of 90s music um and i know some of you are chuck coverly traitor oh coverly <laughs> We thought you were the mayor of the 80s cruise, but you're the traitor of the 80s cruise. Uh, he'll be on both. And another thing, Coverly, <laughs> I'm canceling the check. Don't forget to go to uh, Amazon.com or your favorite local independent bookstore. Look for a copy of Zach Schoenfeld's book, How Couple Became Cage. I guarantee you it is a page turner if you are a fan of the actor. Uh, but in the meantime, Brad myself and Nick Cage remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash stuckinthe80spodcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening.